Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 today on cornerstone connection with pastor gary hamrick it's not just for his day it's for every day and for all people that the human heart, deep down inside, every single one of us is thirsty. Every single one of us is dry. And every single one of us, before we've understood Christ, have tried to quench that thirst by going to a lot of different things to satisfy our souls. And the more you try to do that, the more you find out just how empty you are. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Nehemiah. Mankind was created with the sole purpose of fellowshipping with God, which in turn brings him glory through our worship and praise. Due to our fallen nature, many choose to try and replace fellowship with God with countless people, vices, and false idols. In today's message, Pastor Gary reflects on the nature of the human heart and its constant thirst for fellowship with our Heavenly Father. In our study, we learn that no matter how far and wide we search, there's nothing in this world that can replace the living waters of Christ. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Nehemiah 3 for part one of today's message titled, Examining Our Gates, the Holy Spirit. We're here in Nehemiah chapter 3. Let me give you a quick background so we can uh, get a running start together. Ever since Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the city of Jerusalem would lie in a state of ruins for nearly 150 years until 444 B.C., when a Jew by the name of Nehemiah, living in Persia, serving the king of Persia, would get a burden for the city of his forefathers and for the land of his forefathers. And he would make the pilgrimage about a thousand miles from the citadel of Susa in Persia all the way to the city of Jerusalem, where Nehemiah would then oversee and lead the rebuilding of the city walls and gates of Jerusalem. So for the past few weeks and for a few weeks longer, we're going to be here in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, and we're looking as they rebuilt the gates and the city walls, what do these kind of things say to us today? Because each gate is named And each gate has a purpose, and each purpose translates to a modern parallel of something important for us personally and important for us corporately as a church. Now, as we've been making our way through the study of Nehemiah 3, this is a general outline of what the city looked like in the days of Nehemiah. 
And there were, as chapter 3 tells us, 10 gates that encircled the city. And they would repair these gates in a counterclockwise direction, starting in the upper northeast corner of the city. And so far through chapter 3, we've looked at five particular gates. We've looked at the sheep gate. We've looked at the fish gate. We've looked at the old gate, followed by the valley gate. Last week, we looked at the dung gate. And again, we've been examining these gates, not just in terms of their ancient significance, but in terms of a modern significance, especially as a church, since we are in our own building project, we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah through that lens. We want to make sure that our focus is right as a local church, our priorities are right as a local church, and we don't miss what God is saying to us in the direction that he's taking us in the midst of a building program. How many people understand it's very easy for a church to kind of lose its bearings? You start growing, you get into a building project, and then some of the fundamentals and the important things of a church can become less of a priority. And we want to make sure we stay focused and we can learn from their stories here in Ezra and Nehemiah. What are the things they did right? What are some of the things they did wrong? And how, at least for the time being here in chapter 3, how do these gates speak to us today about some very insignificant things? So in terms of a recap, we've looked at these gates. The sheep gate reminds us of Jesus, who is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And we must continue to present Jesus as the only way to be saved. Followed by the fish gate, Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. So it reminds us of evangelism. And we must continue to cast the net so that others might come to faith in Jesus followed by the old gate, which is where the elders would sit. It reminds us of truth, and we must continue to live by, stand for, and share with others the absolute biblical truth in a time when truth is becoming increasingly subjective and relative. And then we continued, and we looked at the valley gate, which reminds us of trials. Valleys often speak about low points in our lives, and we must continue to present the hope of Jesus to those experiencing the lows of the valley. And then last week we looked at the dung gate, the symbol of filth and garbage and everything wrong that reminds us of sin and how we must continue to deal with sin in our own lives personally and address sin in the life of our church corporately. So today we're going to examine one more gate. I, I wish I could say to you that this was going to go quicker than uh, you, some of you might prefer, but as I start to unpack each of these in my own personal study time, this stuff is just so rich with information that I don't want to rush it. So we're only going to look at one more today. So back to our map, we continue counterclockwise from the dung gate and we come to the fountain gate. And the fountain gate is named here in verse 15 of Nehemiah chapter 3. Look at verse 15 with me. It says this, the fountain gate was repaired by Shalun, son of Kalhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam, that's also important to this story, by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Water, fresh water, is a, a, an obvious necessity to the survival of any people. And that is why every major city, both ancient and even modern cities, are built usually uh, by a body of water. Uh, Washington, Chicago, New York, uh, London, Paris, Moscow, Dubai. Even ancient Babylon was built on the Euphrates River. 
And the reason is because major cities need to be around a major source of water for their survival. The interesting thing is, though, that Jerusalem is an exception to this. The city of Jerusalem was not built along any major river, any major body of water. In fact, there are no rivers, no major bodies of water around the entire city of Jerusalem. So how does this city survive in ancient times? Obviously, today they have underground water and sewer piped into homes and everything. But in ancient times, if you have a major city that is not built around a major source of fresh water, how do the people survive? Well, for the city of Jerusalem, they survived on the basis of two springs, two underground springs that would bubble up. There was an unnamed spring in the northern part of the city that fed into a pool called the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda is mentioned in John chapter 5, and in John chapter 5, it tells us it was near the Sheep Gate. And that pool was fed by an underground spring that is not named. There's a wonderful miracle that occurs there in John chapter 5 around the pool of Bethesda. That was one water source. But the main water source for the entire city of Jerusalem came from another spring further to the south of the city that is actually named in the Bible, and it is called the Gihon Spring. And it was located roughly here on your map, the lower southern eastern part of the city. But if you'll notice where it is placed, the X marks the spot on the outside of the city walls. The spring that furnished fresh water to the city of Jerusalem was outside the city, which was no big deal if you had a bucket. You could go and you could take some water from the spring and take it back inside the city to your homes. But it was a big deal in a time of war. Because in a time of war, an enemy would come, hem you into the city, and all they'd have to do was cut off your fresh water supply, and then you would die or you would give up. Until 700 B.C., under the leadership of King Hezekiah in the Bible, now this is about uh, around 250 years before the days of Nehemiah, King Hezekiah realized how vulnerable they were as a city if another nation came along, attacked them, and cut off their fresh water supply, seeing as how the Gihon Spring is on the outside of the city. So he had this incredible idea, Hezekiah did, to bring the fresh water into the city. But how do you do that? Because Jerusalem is built on a boulder. It's really built on rock. And so Hezekiah decided, well, here's what we're going to do. Here we are perched on the top of this hill, Mount Moriah. It's on bedrock. So he commissioned people to take pickaxes. You have to remember, this is, four, this is 700 B.C., the days of Hezekiah. Okay? No modern equipment, no sonar equipment. Take your pickaxes and dig through solid bedrock to connect the Gihon Spring to the inside of the city. And so Hezekiah's tunnel was built 1,750 feet long, cut through solid bedrock in the city of Jerusalem. Hezekiah's tunnel remained a mystery for many years. It wasn't discovered until 1838. And when they discovered Hezekiah's tunnel, they discovered it was in this zigzag direction. And the reason is because when Hezekiah commissioned people to build this tunnel to bring the fresh water supply into the city, they started at both ends. And if you start at both ends and you try to meet in the middle underground... It's really easy to pass each other. So what they did, and this is the brilliance from heaven that was given to King Hezekiah, as they cut their way through the solid bedrock, they cut in a zigzag direction so that they could then have a greater likelihood of meeting somewhere in the middle. And that's exactly what they did. Hezekiah's tunnel is 60 feet below ground. 
60 feet, carved out of solid bedrock, on average two feet wide, on average six feet high. It is one of the places, by the way, that we go. When we go to Israel, we walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. It's not for claustrophobics, but we do it. It's kind of a tight, narrow passageway, and there's always fresh water up to your ankles, maybe your knees, as we go through the tunnel. But tourists go through Hezekiah's tunnel today. It is an engineering feat of amazing accomplishment. It really is a miraculous accomplishment. Back in those days, 700 B.C., through solid bedrock with pickaxes from opposite directions, meeting in the middle. When Hezekiah's tunnel was completed, the Gihon Spring then brought water inside the city and it dumped into the Pool of Siloam. It is mentioned here in our text in Nehemiah 3.15. The Pool of Siloam was by the fountain gate is what the text tells us. Now, the Pool of Siloam would then be this wonderful reservoir that captured all this fresh water. Check it out. The Pool of Siloam was a mystery for many years, too. It was mentioned in the Bible, but nobody knew where it was. Everything's been built upon century after century after century on top of previous civilizations. The Pool of Siloam was discovered in 2004. It was uncovered accidentally when the Israelis were building another sewer system and they were putting pipelines in through the area and they discovered in the lower part of the city the ancient pool of Siloam. Here is a picture today of what part of the pool of Siloam looks like. Now they haven't unearthed the whole thing. The steps are carved out of the bedrock of the city and they date back to the time of Christ. And you would step down into the pool. Now the pool, we don't even know how, how huge the whole thing is. We do know the length of it though. If you follow your eye along the steps, underneath the canopy, along the wall there, it stretches 225 feet. That's how huge this pool is, and we don't even know the full dimensions of it yet because it hasn't been completely unearthed. Now, I share all this with you because this is an important point to remember related to the fountain gate and recognize the significance because that's the history of this, but now we need to understand what's the modern significance. What's the parallel here? The Pool of Siloam is an important part of the story here by the Fountain Gate because the, the purpose of the Fountain Gate originally was so that people could have access coming outside the city, inside the city, to the Pool of Siloam. If you wanted to get to the Pool of Siloam from outside the city, you went through the Fountain Gate. The Fountain Gate was named to honor the Spring of Gihon. The spring is basically a fountain because it bubbles up from below. So it was so named for that purpose named after the Gihon Spring, for the purpose of getting to the Pool of Siloam. And this is what gets repaired here in Nehemiah 3.15. But the Pool of Siloam has some very important significance in the Bible, particularly there are a couple of stories in your New Testaments in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 9, there was a miracle that was performed here by Jesus at the Pool of Siloam. It tells us in John 9 that there was a man who was born blind, and Jesus heals this man, and he does it in a very unique way. Jesus takes his own spit, mixes it with some mud, and puts this mud compact on this guy's eyes, and then Jesus says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man goes to the pool of Siloam, washes the mud off his eyes, and he can see. That was a miracle that happened at this place. But there is another significant story involving Jesus here and the pool of Siloam and the whole concept of water in John chapter 7. I'm going to ask you to leave Nehemiah and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7 because I want you to see this story 
and understand the significance of this event here and how it applies to us today. So John chapter 7 is where we're going to go in your New Testaments. And I'm going to read just two verses. John 7, starting at verse 37. And it says this, On the last and greatest day of the feast. Now hold that in mind. We'll come back to that. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, this scene, let me have your attention again. This scene transpires here around the pool of Siloam. And it tells us here at the beginning, verse 37, that it was on the last and greatest day of the feast. What feast? If you look back earlier in John chapter 7, we find out it is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was something that the Jews would celebrate. Every male over the age of 21 was required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate one of three major feasts. And one was Tabernacles, also called in Hebrew Sukkot. And part of the celebration of tabernacles was that they honored the Lord for the bounty of the harvest, and they prayed for rain. They prayed for rain. Water was and is a precious commodity, but particularly so in these days. We take for granted now. We go to our kitchen sink. We turn on the faucet. We have fresh water brought right into our house. Not in these days. They were very dependent upon the Lord for rain so that the spring could continue to provide fresh water for the people of Jerusalem. And part of tabernacles was this great parade of celebrating God who provided rain for the harvest, who brought water for us to survive by. And so here's what would happen. The Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day celebration. The eighth day, the last day, was called the last and greatest day. Now, that's when Jesus speaks here. It was on the last and greatest day. And something special happened on the last and greatest day. For the first seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would leave the temple area with a golden pitcher, and he would walk down to the Pool of Siloam, and he would dip the golden pitcher into the Pool of Siloam. And everybody, this, this, this was you know, accompanied by great fanfare. Everybody in the city was celebrating. This happened every morning for seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, where the priest would come down with a golden pitcher, scoop up some water, and he would take it back up to the temple where he would pour it out in what was called an offering of libation. It would basically be a water offering, thanking the Lord that he brings rain for the harvest. He brings water for our survival. And everybody would celebrate the goodness of the Lord in this way. This happened every morning for seven days. On the eighth day, which was the last and greatest day of this feast, the priest would do something different. When he would take the water to the temple area and pour it out, he would read from two passages of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 44. And this is what he would read. Now, just listen to this, and I want you to hear this in the context of what Jesus is about to say in John seven thirty-seven. okay? The priest on the last and greatest day reads this from Isaiah 12, 3 to 6. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the people what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. 
That's what Isaiah 12, 6 says. And here Jesus is, the Holy One of Israel, standing among them, and they didn't recognize him. The priest is reading that passage. Now, the priest would then add Isaiah 44, 3. Listen to what it says. For I will pour water on the thirsty, on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now, this is fascinating, folks, because you got to hear the whole context. So here the priest is, pitcher of water, pouring it out every day for seven days. Eighth day, he gets up, does the same thing, and then reads Isaiah 12, and he reads Isaiah 44. And he talks about water being poured out from the Lord and the, and the bounty of the harvest and the Spirit of God being poured out and all of the symbolism of water in the land. And Jesus then stands up on the last and greatest day of the feast, and he says, if anybody's thirsty... Let him come to me. Let him drink from me. For he who believes in me will never be thirsty again, and out of him will come rivers of living water. All this incredible thing is going on at that time when Jesus inserts himself into the text, into the context. Why? So that people would understand that all this symbolism about water, sure, everybody physically needs water for survival, but there is a greater thirst in the heart of every human being. And that's the thirst of your soul. And there's a deeper need. And Jesus then stands up. And he's not talking about, hey, you can get a, a great cup of water from me and you'll never go thirsty. Physically, he's talking about, hey, I provide something for you that will satisfy and quench the deepest longing of your soul. If you come to me and believe in me, streams of living water will come gushing up from you in a satisfying, quenching way like you've never known. And this is important for all of us to understand. Because as Jesus is explaining all of this, we need to hear this too. It's not just for his day. It's for every day and for all people. That the human heart, deep down inside, every single one of us is thirsty. Every single one of us is dry. And every single one of us, before we've understood Christ, have tried to quench that thirst by going to a lot of different things to satisfy our souls. And the more you try to do that, the more you find out just how empty you are. Because nothing and no one will satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart like Jesus Christ. Like Jesus Christ. And so that's what he wants us to get here. And as he stands up there, he says, whoever's thirsty, let him drink from me. You'll never go thirsty again. Out of you will come rivers of living water. He's talking about how he can fulfill the deepest need, the deepest longing of every human heart. He says, I want you to come to me, believe in me, because when you put your faith in me, when you believe in me, then there's going to be this bubbling effect of my presence in your life that will be so satisfying, so quenching, like no one and nothing else you've ever encountered. Now, John, in John 7 there, John himself, the writer, adds in verse 39 clarification to what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 39. John says, by this, he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Okay? Jesus has not yet died on the cross. He's not yet finished the work. Okay? When he's on the cross and he dies, he says, it is finished. So his redemptive work has not yet been completed. But once Jesus dies on the cross and we accept him as our Savior and Jesus comes into our life, his very presence by way of his Spirit comes into us 
And so John is adding here, he says, this is what he meant. He meant those who would later believe in him after he dies on the cross will receive the very presence of his spirit. And when they receive that, it is this welling up effect of this quenching presence of God. That's all we have time for today on Cornerstone Connection. We're so glad you've taken the time out of your day to join us for a period of learning and encouragement for your life. If you were blessed by today's teaching, we'd encourage you to share it with someone you feel could use a little blessing as well. You can find and share this and many additional messages online at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take us with you on the go with our mobile app. Pastor Gary has also created companion resources that go along with some of the studies he's done. These are available on our website as well. Again, that address is cornerstoneconnection.cc. We at Cornerstone Connection believe that life is done better in community. Are you part of a local body of believers? For those of you in the Leesburg, Virginia area, we'd like to invite you to join us in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Come to our weekend services and find a warm group of people who would love to be your community. Weekend services are held Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. And we have a midweek gathering on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you'll come back next time as Pastor Gary continues through the book of Nehemiah on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know.